Hey guys, welcome to episode 107 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So over the past two weeks, we have received so many reviews on iTunes and Podbean. So we just wanted to thank you all so very, very much because your reviews have made us laugh, almost made us cry because they were so good. So we just wanted to say that we appreciate all of your kind words. And we know that we may not have this like massive, massive audience, but we are beyond happy with the amazing community that we have listening to us. So I know we say we always appreciate you every episode, but I just want to send you all that love for sending us all that love. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So if you haven't done so yourself, please think about leaving us a review on whatever platform you listen to because it really does help get the word out about us a little bit, help us with the charts and things like that. But really the best thing you could do is tell a friend or talk about it on a true crime forum or like true crime on Reddit. Like that always really helps us if people are talking about us. So we... Just want to thank you for always being so, so awesome to us. I could have said it better. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we also want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon. So like always, at the end of the show, we are going to name all of our new supporters. And if you join Patreon right now, you will receive 50 full additional episodes of this podcast. Okay. So enough of all of that. I don't want it to seem like we're selling. We're selling stuff. How are you feeling? I'm good. I'm actually, I'm happy to be back. Main show. Here we go. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to start the episode. Let's do it. Okay. On the night of Tuesday, May 14th, 1996, a call came in to the Virginia Beach dispatch. A man was frantically screaming into the phone. Please help my wife. My God, he yelled between labored breathing. Dispatch was slowly able to get information out of the man. He told them where he lived, a condo complex near the naval base. But what the man said next shocked even the veteran dispatcher. As his wife could be heard gasping for breath beside him, he said, I killed him. I was attacked, and when I came to, a man was raping and stabbing my wife. So I got my gun, and I killed him. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Virginia Beach police raced to the scene of the 911 call. It sounded like they had quite the scene waiting for them. Because of the details the husband, now identified as Eddie McDessie, had explained, the crime scene techs and detectives were on their way as well. Now, what they didn't know were the complete details of what Eddie McDessie was going to say. And once they got there, they talked to the husband. So that the couple had gone out to dinner on a Tuesday night. And when they arrived back at their house, the man, Eddie, had been hit over the head upon entry. So it was kind of like somebody was waiting behind the door of their home. He had been knocked out. And when he came to, he heard the screams of his wife. 
he was actually tied up with his hands and his his hands behind his back and his ankles were tied, but he was able to break free of his restraints and he ran upstairs and grabbed his gun. When he got into the bedroom, he saw a man standing over his wife. He was in the process of raping and stabbing her. So he got the man's attention. The man turned around and he shot him once. And then what it seems like is that the man must have fallen to his knees and then he shot him again. So it was a pretty brutal scene, as you can imagine from, you know, what I just described. And nothing really could ever prepare any of the police officers or the detectives or the crime scene techs for the carnage that they were going to walk into. Um, And that's what everyone who responded to this scene said. The amount of blood that was everywhere and the absolute brutality in which the wife was attacked was something that really has stayed with these men throughout their lives. Now, the first level of the condo seemed to be completely undisturbed. So they worked their way upstairs because they actually, once they entered the home, they heard the wailing of the man that they assumed had called 911. When they reached the main bedroom, they saw nothing but bloodshed. Blood covered every surface of the bedroom. It spattered the walls, the floor, the bed was soaked in blood. Um, All of the furniture had blood all over it. I mean, two people had been killed in the room. On the bed was Eddie McDessie's wife, Elise. She had been tied to the four posts of the bed, her arms and legs spread out. Her dress had been pulled up and her stockings and her underwear had been ripped. Her and the bed around her was completely soaked in blood. There was actually a pool of that blood on her stomach. The officer told Eddie to back away from his wife. He felt for a pulse. And looking at her body, uh, the amount of blood that she had lost, he didn't expect to find one. But there was. Oh, my God. This is insane. So this guy is tied up. No, no, the woman is tied up. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I oh, interrupted I, well, you. No, it's okay. I let me I'm sorry. let me go let me do that again. <laughs> uh so the husband's tied up when he comes to. Right. And now you have the wife upstairs tied up. Like this is crazy. So and and now I'm guessing the attacker's dead. Yes, the attacker's dead to like if you were looking on at the bed, he's dead to the right side of the bed. You know that is actually crazy that she has a pulse still. Yeah. With the amount of blood that is in this house. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, her injuries were so extensive, and that's really why the fact that she had a pulse was so incredible. Her throat was slit very deeply, and she had three massive wounds on her chest and stomach. The paramedics rush to take care of Elise, right? Because she is their first priority because she's still alive. So first thing that they needed to do was cut her loose from the ropes that were holding her to the bed. The ropes were tied so tightly that when they were cutting the rope, it like recoiled. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
The ligature marks on Elise's wrists and ankles were a deep purple. She had fought against them really hard. The paramedics later said that there was no other way to describe what happened to Elise. And, you know, this is a very crude term, but she had been gutted. They weren't just stab wounds in her chest and her stomach. Three massive ones. Instead, what happened was somebody stabbed. Instead, what happened is that her attacker stabbed her and then dragged the knife down three times, causing a lot of tearing, a lot of bleeding and damage. Some of her intestines were exposed. Oh, my gosh. That is insane. I know. So it was a miracle that she was alive. Once Elise was freed from the ropes, as much triage that could be done was done on her, and she was rushed to a nearby hospital. However, on the way to the hospital, Elise McDessie died from her injuries. That's really sad. Yeah. I mean, thinking about all the damage that was done to her organs by the dragging of the knife, it most likely she would not have been able to survive the surgery like no amount of surgery could have repaired the damage that was done to her body so it's just really unfortunate that this woman she suffered she she suffered for a really long time and on top of that there there was a sexual assault that took place yeah there was so much done to her it it don't like it almost seems really really personal it does it definitely seems like a a personal attack i feel like i say that a lot but this is like a lot more serious super personal this is super personal (laughs) (laughs) um it's definitely clear from the crime scene that she is the main target of this attack obviously because the attacker didn't even attempt to kill eddie mcdessie he just knocked him out and tied him up and then the focus was on elise so she is the person this killer was after which i find weird because i don't want to say weird but just it's not typical right yeah, because usually, I mean, if someone's going to go to these uh, to these extremes to rape and murder somebody, right, especially with a knife, you would think that instead of tying the husband up, you would just take out the one person that might be able to stop you, right? Yes, usually that's the first person that an attacker takes out is the one that is the biggest physical threat to them. I mean, it make I mean, it makes sense, but for that not to take place here is is odd. It is. It is odd, but maybe there was a lot of. I mean clearly based on the attack there was a lot of anger here so maybe they were so angry at elise that they were just eager to get to her also you have to think this is one person trying to keep two people like at his bay so maybe he was like let me just kind of like take care of the husband as quickly as possible and because it was probably hard to control and keep elise captive while he was trying to like tie up the husband and stuff that's also a possibility. I just, like I said... Well, you're I, right. It would have been faster to just kill him. It would have been. It, I, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I'll put a bookmark on that. Okay. Bookmark. So lying at the side of the bed was the body of a black male who appeared to be in his 30s. A pool of blood was beneath him. This was clearly the man that had been shot. To the left of his body were three spent shell casings. To his right there were two live rounds. His right hand was slightly underneath the bed 
and next to it was a large knife that was later determined to be the murder weapon. So basically the murder weapon was in his hand when he fell down. He had been shot in his pulmonary artery and his heart. Wow. Okay. Now, the, his positioning, just to let you know, was um, imagine falling to your knees and then just falling backwards. So the bottom of his legs were kind of folded underneath him and he had fallen backwards. So when that second shot hit him, that when the first shot hit him, he fell to his knees. That's what Eddie McDessie said. And when the second shot hit him, he fell backwards. So okay. that's why he was in the position he was in. Okay. So the detectives that were called to the scene immediately started questioning Eddie McDessie. He had a small injury to the right side of his head just above his ear. And there was also a small puncture wound on the top of his left hand. He told detectives that he and his wife had just come home from going out to an Italian restaurant. As soon as they walked into the house, he had been ambushed from behind. He must have passed out because the next thing he remembered, he was coming to hearing the deafening screams of his wife. It did seem, based on the scuff marks and the chipped door frame, that there was a struggle that took place in the, in the entryway of the home. Between the two men. Yes. So it, it well, or like someone being knocked out and like trying to like grab the door frame. Okay. So it just seemed like there was physical evidence that was consistent with the story that Eddie McDessie was telling the detectives. So, I mean, that always helps when there's physical evidence to corroborate the story that you're telling. So after he awoke and heard the screaming of his wife, he found that he had been tied up. So he was able to break free of his restraints, but he did say that it did take a considerable amount of time. All the while, he was listening to his wife being attacked. I mean, that's that's pretty, uh, I don't know. I don't Brutal. Know. I wouldn't want to be in that situation. So that's really sad. So next he ran up to the bedroom um, and right kind of like the entryway of their bedroom, there is a dresser where he keeps the gun. So, like, if anyone ever, like, came in, they would be able to grab the gun as they were, like, leaving the bedroom. So, it was right there. So, he was kind of able to, I mean, I don't want to say sneak up on the attacker, but the attacker was facing Elise in the bedroom. So, he didn't hear Eddie McDessie come up behind him. So, so the gun was in the in a drawer? In a dresser drawer. In a dresser drawer. And he was able... in like a hallway or in a room? No, like when you just walk in the bedroom, there's a dresser to the left. Okay, so at this point, he's, he he goes into the room. Yes. He just... And the guy just doesn't know he's there. No, because okay. he's facing the Elise who was on the bed. Okay, okay. So he then, you know, gets the man man's attention and he turns around. And that is when... He shoots him. I mean, he walks in and he said that this man was in the process of raping and stabbing his wife at the same time. So his reaction was to shoot this man. Then the well, first, when he grabbed his attention, the man kind of like backed up, which explains why he was on the right side of the bed and then drops to his knees, falls back. Got it. That's this. That's what Eddie McDessie is telling the police. 
So everything at the scene, both like we said before in the doorway and in the bedroom, did appear to coincide with the story that Eddie McDessie was telling. So here you have the story from the only survivor of this incident and you have the physical evidence and they match each other. So. Okay, so it looks like what the husband's saying is like panning out. Right. I mean, you know, his his eyewitness testimony and everything else. And also the evidence points to there being a struggle in grabbing the doorway, possibly falling and everything like that. So, right. I mean, it sounds believable. I also have to say, too, like this, as you can imagine, was an unbelievable scene and event to be a part of. So I can't imagine everything that you remember being 100% correct either. Because you're in a state of heightened shock, adrenaline. Like, I couldn't imagine being in that moment. Yeah, I so. think it's, it would be hard for someone to recall every little thing of that encounter. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure you, you'd get the biggest things. But, you know, sometimes, you know, like, let's say investigators are looking for the smallest detail that could crack it open. But some people just can't recall everything. So, I mean. exactly, And that's why it's like kind of really good that Eddie McDessie has been able to recall these events and everything's coinciding. I mean, this is an investigator's dream, right? Yeah. So on the first floor of the condo, a jacket was found that Eddie McDessie did not identify as belonging to him. The jacket was neatly folded over the arm of one of the chairs in the living room. It was a Navy bomber jacket from the same base that Elise herself worked at. Within the jacket, a set of keys was found. The investigators searched the surrounding area trying to find a match for the keys. And eventually, they did find the Buick that matched the keys. Within the car was a wallet. The car and the jacket belonged to a man named Quincy Brown. And he was most likely the man lying dead on the McDessie's bedroom floor. According to his wallet, he was a member of the United States Navy. Elise was also a member of the United States Navy. So they were both on active duty. And he was also a husband and a father. Wow, this is interesting. Uh, it, it, were these homes on base or like were these like outside? Off base. Of, off base. Okay. Um, just another fact. Sorry, I forgot to, to add this. But... In the jacket, in addition to the keys, was a condom. Hmm. So, just giving out facts. Okay. Because two active duty and naval officers had been involved in this crime, NCIS became involved in the investigation. And Virginia Beach detectives were happy to have the help. Because the involvement of NCIS meant that they would have immediate access to any confidential files that they may have needed. They found out quickly that Quincy Brown was assigned to the Oceana quarter deck. He was married and had a six-year-old child. Elise also worked on the Oceana, but in air traffic control. However, she had just been reassigned to the quarter deck. Now, this is interesting because it meant that she worked with Quincy Brown, but that she also just received a demotion because going from air traffic control to the quarter deck is considered a demotion without it technically being a demotion. 
who do we know who arranged that? Was that just something through the military, like through the Navy that did that to motion? Or did she elect to change where she was? She did not elect to make that change. Oh, okay. So now they had two officers dead, one accused of the rape and murder of the other. So Virginia Beach detectives and NCIS worked to figure out just who these two officers were. By all accounts, Elise was soft-spoken and a sweet woman. She was very intelligent and had worked very hard to get where she was within the Navy, which was something she was really proud of. She had been married to Eddie McDessie for five years, and they seemed happy together. Quincy Brown had also been married to his wife for several years. He was a jovial man that was known to always be in a good mood. He also worked hard and was proud of his involvement in the Navy. He loved to play basketball and would often be seen on his downtime teaching his child how to play basketball as well. He was a good guy and a good dad. So what could have happened here? And did it have anything to do with the two officers suddenly having to work together? Eddie was brought to the hospital to have his head wound attended to in thoughts that he most likely sustained a concussion. While he was there, the police wanted to talk to him again about what had happened that night. They were also there because they wanted to collect his clothing as evidence. When the police asked Eddie why he thought this happened to his wife, he said to them, you didn't find the videotapes yet? That's why they did this to her. Oh, so he's saying that there's a... Okay, wait. You know what this reminds me of? This Tell reminds me. me of a movie that you recently just watched. The you General's remember? Daughter. The General's Daughter with uh, with uh, John Travolta. Yes, and she was actually tied to... That's weird. To the four posts. Very interesting. Maybe they... T- I don't know when that movie came out, but... Oh, yeah, that movie made me cry. Well, anyway, so that's actually... There's a lot of similarities between that movie and, and so far where we are here. Mm-hmm. Just thought I'd point that out. That is a really good observation. Thank you. okay so actually we just took like a second pause because i did want to google those two movies because there is a really strong similarity of what happened to elise mcdessey and what happened in the movie a general's daughter and i think that the movie actually pulled from this case because this case happened in 1996 and the general's order came out in 1999. Did we just establish a connection without even trying? Wow, that's really <laughs> high five. We did, that was really great stuff. That was good. I know. It's like we should be hired as detectives. Well, maybe. Maybe, maybe just should. you. You're great. No, no. Yeah. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Don't give me all the credit. Don't make me blush. So really at this point, the detectives probably have two questions. First, who is they, right? Because he refers to that's why they did this to her. And what videotapes is, is he talking about? Yeah, that's a lot of unanswered questions. He said that Elise had asked him to videotape what had happened to her so they would have it as security if anything else ever happened to her. So investigators found the videotapes that Eddie McDessie had been talking about in the closet of the main bedroom. They put the VHS in the player and they saw Elise sitting on a couch. She said she was making this video in case anything ever happened to her. She had her truth to tell and she was going to do it. She went on to claim that she had been the victim of rape and numerous sexual assaults during her time in the U.S. Navy. 
She said that she had tried to report this behavior to her superior officers, but they ignored what she had to say. They had said to her, are you sure you want to do this? And she told them yes. And she was then demoted to quarterdeck. Okay, so this is starting to shape up. So first of all, I just want to point out, this is horrible that these are, you know, like she's claiming that these things are happening to her. You know, I, I'm sure I, I believe her. So, but the fact that th- that's the reason now why she has been demoted and moved. Yeah. So, okay, that makes sense, though, as to how she got from where she was in a really good spot, and now she's, what was it, quarter deck? Quarter deck. Okay, now she's there. So that th- explains a, the um, demotion. Right. And she said that after she was moved to the quarter deck, she was sexually assaulted and accosted even more. She was threatened, and one man said, watch what you say or do because you and your husband could get hurt. Okay. Which just happened. And it was apparent that Elise was the main victim here in this crime that took place. And she was sexually assaulted again. Okay. I have a question now. Okay. Does the, did the husband know about, well, I know he knows because they obviously made the tapes. Yeah. But does he know about the threats, like all the threats? Yeah. To him as well? And that's why they had made the tapes. Okay. Um, Eddie McDessie said that he was you know, angry about what had happened to his wife, but he also wanted to respect her as a survivor of these events. And he wanted her to speak her truth and really do whatever she wanted to do. And what she wanted to do was make a tape because she really did fear for her own safety. And not only did they have that one tape, but they also made a copy of that tape and they had put it in a lockbox that they both owned at their bank as an insurance policy and it was addressed to a local news affiliate okay all right so they were really trying to make this known like they were serious about getting this information out to the public yeah uh no definitely i i feel like the tapes though i f- i almost feel like like okay, what are they going to do with it? Are they try Are they going to try to blackmail the military? Yeah, you know, or or say they're going to like like because you could think like okay, if you have proof, then you could you know sue them, you could sue the military for everything that's been happening to her, or maybe you're trying to blackmail a superior like officer or something. Like that's what I feel like this is like turning into, and you know having that at a, in a safety deposit box is a little strange and not your home. I right? well they did they had one in the closet and then one in the safety. Okay, so they had an box. insurance policy, quote unquote. Yeah, you know, just for that one. So that's interesting. I think that you bring up a really good point because we don't know the intention. Well, and the detectives and you guys right now don't know the intention of these videotapes. Does Elise just want justice, or is there blackmailing that was taking place? And that's what the detectives wanted to know at this point as well. I mean, this is crazy. They had just unlocked a scandal, a scandal that the Navy may be trying to keep quiet. It also was the first time, and and this is kind of haunting, and this was a detail that really like screamed out to me about this case, was that for the first time, you have a murder victim working to solve her own case, speaking to the detectives from her grave. And giving them details. Yeah, like they they said it was very eerie, haunting almost to to see the woman who they saw brutalized on her bed Mm 
and who they watch try to be saved speaking to them. Yeah, it must must have been pretty hard. Yeah. So, and you know, everything is really highly emotional. It was highly emotional finding her in the state that she was in. And, it, and these videos are highly emotional. I mean, this case has now broken into a completely different direction. And there is so much sexual misconduct that happens within the U.S. military at all branches. And, you know, it's highly controversial and it's something that isn't spoken about but happens on these massive scales and recently at this point because now we're we're talking about 1996 at that point the navy had been embroiled in a scandal involving sexual misconduct and the ncis knew that this case now had to be handled with extreme care now the scandal that i'm talking about that the navy had just kind of tried to put behind them in 1996 was the tailhook scandal that occurred in 1991. A Department of Defense investigation followed and did not conclude until 1994, and most changes that were supposed to be taking place in the military didn't take effect until 1996, the year in which Elise McDessie and Quincy Brown murders took place. Okay. So if you're not aware of what the tailhook scandal is... Holy shit, do I have a story for you? <laughs> All right, I'm buckling up right yeah. now. So this is an event that took place in a Hilton hotel in Las Vegas during the weekend of September 5th through 8th in 1991. It was a gathering of the Tailhook Association, which is a fraternal organization that supports the interests of sea-based aviation. It's basically composed of active and retired U.S. naval officers and Marines. So people that were that have an interest in ships and planes in military style. Okay, that's pretty cool. During the weekend, officers were said to have sexually assaulted 83 women and seven men. I know that that sounds like an excessive amount. But it was all able to happen so quickly because of an event that the members of the Tailhook Association called the Gauntlet. Most of the members of the association were staying or had friends or associates staying on the third floor of the hotel. Whenever a woman or a group with women in it were approaching the hallway, one member would pound on the walls. And then all of the men would get out of their hotel rooms and line up against the walls of the hallway and sexually assault the women as they walked through the hallway. Women were grabbed by the genitals, behinds, and their breasts. Some had their clothes ripped from their bodies and were grabbed naked. And the women kicked and screamed to be let loose. Some of them tried to run away in the opposite direction and... It, it just seemed like the women that were fighting had it worse for them. So some women just gave up and allowed the men to touch them as they walked through the hallway. One woman even had her underwear ripped from her body. One woman who passed through this hallway was a superior officer. She was grabbed by several men in all of the places that I mentioned before And she had to kick, punch, and bite her way to safety in a room where she called another superior officer. Later in the day, when she recounted what happened to her, 
The response from her equals was, no one told you they were holding the gauntlet. So they knew. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, geez, I don't understand that. It's it's like a, what do you call it? It's a disgusting yeah. mob mentality yeah. of a, now I know that some things have changed, but not all things have changed um, because there are so many cases, even present cases, um, like Vanessa Gillian case currently, where there are, there's like misconduct when it comes to women in the military. And it's very evident and what the U.S. Navy, after this event was accused of, was kind of perpetuating this idea of male superiority over women and that women are objects and that's what they project. So the women that are in the force are allowed to be used. Right. Um, besides that horrific actions of the gauntlet that took place, there was more. A semi-conscious 18-year-old woman was carried out of one of the suites. She was heavily intoxicated and unable to walk. She was passed from suite to suite where each group of men would remove an article of clothing from her. And by the end of the hallway, she was completely naked. Two security guards saw the woman with two men over her and they rushed to help her. The men ran away when the guards approached. The men were also charged with public nudity, excessive alcohol consumption, public sexual activity, in addition to the physical and sexual assaults that they committed. They also at one point threw a TV out of a window and it hit somebody who was on um, in the pool area. Yeah. They went nuts. I, you know, I have to just point this out. If you weren't telling me that we were talking about the the Navy, I would think that we're at like this freaking crazy frat house. Yeah. Like, you know, that you see in like movies or something because this is like this is Disgusting. absurd behavior um from members of the military. I mean, I just don't understand it. It's crazy. And that's why it outraged the public and led to an investigation headed by the Department of Defense. Unfortunately, not one person was held accountable for the events of that weekend. A few higher-ups had to quietly retire, and the country was appalled. But this was a larger conversation than just the events at the Tailhook Convention, because the fact that no one was held accountable was part of a bigger picture of the United States military and its treatment of women. During the investigation, the DOD surveyed 90,000 service members, in that survey, they found that 55% of uniformed women had experienced sexual harassment at least once within the past year. Wow, that's a lot. Imagine that statistic when you would say, like, throughout your entire career, have you ever experienced this? It would That number would probably be drastically higher. So the tail hook scandal highlighted the hostile attitude the United States military did seem to have against women inside and outside of military service. And because no one had been punished, the DOD announced sweeping changes that were going to be made in the military to save face. And those sweeping changes were supposed to happen in 1996. So here we are in 1996, and Elise McDessie, who had just been murdered, had made a tape claiming that she had been a victim and that when she told her superior officer she had just been demoted, 
the exact opposite of the sweeping changes that the DOD was supposed to have been making within the United States military. So that's why NCIS now had a massive responsibility here to look at these allegations and put these new changes to the test. I mean, yeah, I mean, because it doesn't look good. And you know what's terrible? They're getting hit. I mean, it's their own fault. But the military is getting hit with all these things, back, like, one after the other here. Yep. So, I mean, talk like, about sweeping changes. I mean, like, <laughs> they just like to use those big words like that. Not, well, not that sweeping change is a big word, but you know what I mean? Like, Well, yes, like the policies that they were putting in yeah, place. Yeah, it makes you think, oh, my God, real change. Like, but nothing happens. It's more of the same. Yeah, exactly. So upon further searching in the house for more corroborating evidence to the tapes, a notebook was found in the bedroom of the McDessies. The notebook is word for word what was said in the tape. So it was a transcript of sorts. And it seemed like Elise was really trying to go public with this information, right? She's got two tapes. She has this notebook in place. Um, she has many insurance policies. NCIS and the Virginia Beach Police Department detectives work to investigate exactly what is said in those tapes and written in the notebook, which is the following. She said that throughout her time in Virginia, she had been sexually and physically assaulted several times. She described those incidents, but they were not released to the public. Not all of them. She claimed to have told her superior officer and was ignored and then later demoted. She said upon demotion in January of that year, a petty officer second class came into the room that she was in and punched her in the stomach. He then raped her. Afterward, he threatened that if she did not keep her mouth shut, more would happen to her and her husband would also be harmed. But there was one detail in the notebook that was different from the videos. Names. At the bottom of the story... She listed the names of her attackers. Oh, wow. Okay. In total, she listed four men, and one of them was Quincy Brown. Oh, my God. This is like, this is insane. Okay. This is all coming together now, I feel like. Hopefully, yeah. this is like, you know, justice is served. So, once finding these tapes, and the journal, the investigators wanted to speak with Elise's husband again. What exactly did he know about this situation? Eddie McDessie was again forthcoming with them. He said that he and Elise had been married for five years at that point. They chose not to have children, and they were very happy and close. They never had any massive fights, and Eddie, although very angry about the attacks that his wife endured during her time in the Navy, stayed calm and supported anything that she wanted to do, regardless of what would happen. He said that it had only been recently that she wanted to come forward with the assaults and the gross negligence of her superior officers, and he encouraged her to do so, although he was worried about what would happen to her and him for doing that. So that kind of like answered your earlier question as to was he nervous? And he was, but he wanted to support his wife. Which any husband would do, so. So with her husband backing up the claims that Elise had made, NCIS has to take on this investigation into the claims. And from what I said, you know, they were under a lot of scrutiny and they had to do a good job at this. 
And this is kind of um, going to be a hard nut to crack because sometimes what happens when an investigation takes place within any branch of the United States military, they kind of close ranks. So they really have to get to the bottom of what took place here. All three men that were listed because, you know, Quincy Brown was was dead, were questioned by NCIS. They were all also required to take a polygraph test. Two of the men passed the polygraph test, claiming that they never had any sexual interactions with Elise McDessie, and they passed. It is determined that they had no sexual contact at all, whether it was forced or consensual. Okay. But one of the men doesn't pass. So he's brought in for further questioning. Because he didn't pass, he admitted that one night while the two were working together, that Elise McDessie had offered to give him a sexual favor. Something that he uh, said yes to. All right. The superior officers are questioned about Elise going to them to report her allegations, but they denied Elise ever talking to them about any assaults. There were also no records of Elise ever requesting a meeting with them. NCIS determined from its investigation, and it was a very extensive investigation, I wouldn't just say this if it was not, that the allegations made by Elise McDessie were false claims. Okay. So this like leads me to believe a little bit that maybe this was to somehow gain like something like you wouldn't go out of your way to create these tapes and falsely accuse four men. Well, I should tell three men of, of sexual assault. If it didn't happen, like, like what are you trying to do? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't really know, but there has to be more to this. So, I mean, it, it can't just be the end here. So, Oh no, it's definitely not the end. But, you know, before they continue investigating, this is something that's really uncomfortable for detectives and the members of NCIS because now you have a woman who is a victim in every sense of the word. She was brutally attacked and she died because of her injuries, but she also made false claims of sexual assault or if and... I know you are one of them, John. People who are into conspiracy theories. Is this just a cover-up? And was the investigation really not well done? Like, according to all the records that I could find, this was an extensive investigation that took almost a year to do. Well, okay. I'll just put it in... in, in like, I want to try to compare it to, like, the police just because they have a division that handles things like this. Imagine if... This happened with police officers. You would have, uh, you would have IA internal affairs investigating every cop, and, you know, and try to go through everything, right? Well, the NCIS is doing the same thing with the military. They can't hide that. Some of those things, if that is legitimate, there is record of it because it's a government agency. There has to be records of that. So if someone is, I mean, coming forward and saying something, I'm not saying that they or they didn't or whatever but it should be on record somewhere or you can talk to somebody that that would say that would corroborate that you know not not saying that it's not true 
and she is a victim. I'm just trying to say that because it being a government agency, it's the military, you have an internal task force looking into it. I don't know. It's something's possible. The only way I could see that not like being the way it is, is if someone at the very, very, very top was involved, was involved and they don't want that person touched. I understand. The only thing I could think of. And really, the officers involved were not high-ranking officials. So I I don't see the U.S. Navy going out on a limb for these men. They would. It would be more easy for them to make these men the scapegoats in this situation. Though the military has a lot to lose by this being true. Because now you just went through a scandal in 1991, right? You Correct. have all the criticism that's that came out afterwards. Now you have the murder of two officers uh, and that one officer is claiming uh, sexual misconduct throughout her time in the military um, on active duty. So there is a lot to lose though. So it's, it's like, you don't know what to believe. You don't know what to like, how to feel about it, but there is a lot to lose. And most likely most of the time, you know, the person or the agency or whatever with the most to lose is the one that's covering it up, right? Okay. So basically, even though NCIS has deemed that these allegations were false, we will leave it as a question mark. I will, Yeah, question mark Moving for forward. sure. Yeah. Well, they still are claiming that she made false allegations. So they have to move forward carefully as not to defame the woman who is a victim in this situation. What they're determining now is what was Quincy Brown's role within that room if the allegations are false. Now, let's not forget this man is dead. He cannot defend himself, but he also can't be questioned. So just because these three men may have been deemed innocent of committing any sexual misconduct against Elise McDessie, that doesn't clear Quincy Brown. Right. So things are a lot more complicated now. They thought once there was a conclusion to this NCIS investigation, they would have answers, but instead they have more questions. Why did Elise McDessie make this video? Why was Quincy Brown in their house? Why would he have attacked her? If he had assaulted her, why did she name other men as a silence as well, if it was only him. And what the hell happened that night? We don't know. (laughs) Well, the story before the NCIS findings was that maybe Quincy Brown had gone to the McDessie house to shut Elise and Eddie up about the claims that they were making. But now the investigators know that that wasn't necessarily the case. So they want to take a second look at all of the evidence and just kind of lay it out in front of them and see what direction they go in. Smartest thing to do. Agreed. So by all accounts, Quincy Jones is reported to have been a really good man. Listen, not to say there's a lot of people that were reported as really good men who ended up being serial killers. So I think that only goes so far to us true crime aficionados. (laughs) He was considered by all to be the least likely suspect for murder. When they found his jacket in the living room, it seemed like he had carefully placed it down. It was folded and draped over the arm of a chair. It was left in plain sight with a condom and car keys in it. 
not something that people hiding in the shadows behind your door waiting to attack you would normally do. That is true. That seemed odd. Then they analyzed Eddie's story again. He claimed that when he had come to, Quincy Brown had been in the process of raping his wife with the knife still in hand as his wife lay brutally stabbed and tied to the bed. However, when his body was found, he had all of his clothes on. His jeans were zipped, buttoned, and his belt was on and his shirt was tucked in. Uh, okay, um, red flag. Pulling out one. On top of a, this is a red flag appearance here. Yep. And I think it is like a super major red flag too because Eddie McDessie, and I know that he may have been disoriented. He did have a concussion. Um, he might have been, you know, full of adrenaline. This might have been something that he fabricated within his mind because it was clear what had happened to his wife. But in no way could Quincy Brown have, when he was, he was surprised by Eddie McDessie and then he backed away. He wouldn't have pulled up his pants, zippered them, buttoned them, tucked in his shirt, put his belt back on. I don't see that happening. You're right. Regardless of a concussion or being dazed or whatever, you're not going to not, you know, that person's not going to. You saw that or you didn't right, see exactly. that. Exactly. You either saw him doing it with his pants, whatever, or you just didn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. No one can do that that fast. Not even people with the pants in the NBA and then rip them off before games could do it that Not quickly. even breakaways? Okay, not even breakaway pants, which I hope nobody wears those anymore. Well, it takes a really long time to put them back on, actually. It's very true, but you get my point. Like, unless he's doing that, I mean, come on. I mean, that's that doesn't make sense to me. So, red flag for me. Yeah, I would say so. And now, all of a sudden, like Eddie McDessie's story that seemed to jive so well with the physical evidence kind of no longer does. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you continue to keep combing through a story, you're going to find inconsistencies. So, I mean, starting to happen. And so on top of that, something else interesting happened. Eddie McDessie received a large insurance policy that had been taken out on his wife. Red flag. In the amount of $500,000. A policy that was only taken out three weeks prior to her death. Oh, man, come on. It's always the policy. Dude, th- all right, no one does themselves any favors, all right? If you're going to get yourself an insurance policy a couple of months before you decide or whoever to get rid of the uh, your life partner there uh, for insurance money, it's not going to work. It's bad. It's bad for your image, man. You're going to look <laughs> guilty. It's it's the most like important thing. You just don't do it. Now, can I play devil's advocate here for a second? Sure. Let's say the claims that Elise McDessie made are true. And the Navy is trying to kind of quell this investigation and all these accusations that are coming up. Wouldn't it? and, And Elise was raped and threatened. Would it make sense for them to take out insurance policies on themselves? Um... I mean, I I don't know, I guess. I mean, I, I'm not too sure. Like, I don't know. I can't really. Like, I mean, if, I, I, I if my life was being threatened and then we, like, really talked about it and we were like, okay, um, say, like, one, 
we wouldn't be able to support ourselves solo in the current condition we're in, like with the house and, and car payment and like all of that stuff. Wouldn't it be responsible to then take out an insurance policy so the other partner could continue? Yeah, but you know what, though? We're not talking about like millions of dollars here. I mean, yes, $500,000 is a lot of money back in 1996. Yes. But like, you know, still, that's not a forever solution. It's not like, oh, my, my partner's going to die. Um, Whatever I get from here, I can live the rest of my life. Most likely not. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. You, you do bring up a good point. I think the point that I want to bring up right now is I do find it weird that Quincy Brown um, is there and being accused of mur- uh, you know rape and murder, but he goes there and takes his jacket off and folds it neatly on on a piece of furniture or wherever it was, um, and then inside uh, the contents of a condom and his keys. I'm sorry, but if you're going to go through that and do those things, you're not going to have that stuff. Which in a my married mind, man should never have a condom in his pocket. Well. Let's just forget the fact that he's married with a six-year-old kid for a second. Let's just look at it like this. You're not going to bring a condom with you unless you have been invited. You know what I mean? Like, you're not, you know, unless you were invited, you're not going to have a condom in your jacket. Okay. I see. I see where you're going with this. So, I guess the last bit of this is, did, did they have a relationship? Is this something that was commonplace? Were they cheating on, you know, or was she cheating on her husband with him? These are all these things that are going through my mind right now. Okay. Because to have a condom in your pocket is not normal. Agreed. Okay. Should that be the title of the episode? To have a condom in your pocket is not normal. If you're married. In parentheses. And in your jacket. And in someone else's home. Like, I don't know. Having a condom on you is, is a very... Uh, uh... What an embarrassing thing to fall out of your <laughs> wait, jacket wait. pocket. Wait, wait, wait. This is bad. Wait, wait. I'm not saying not using a condom... We understand, John. You are an advocate of safe sex, but you're saying if you're married, don't bring a condom. I'm just saying the weird part is not that he's using a condom. The weird part is that there is a condom in his jacket where he is and he's being accused of rape and murder. I will tell you that the audience understood what you were saying. Oh, jeez. They got you, John. Okay. (laughs) Well, I have more news for you. All right. In addition to the life insurance policy, Navy officials informed NCIS that Eddie McDessey had inquired with the Navy Federal Credit Union, that's a military bank, asking about a life insurance policy that the couple held with them as well. Now, this would not be entirely odd, but he visited the bank just 40 hours after he made the 911 call. 40 hours. Now listen, once again, that's all great and all, um, I, I'll play devil's advocate just a little bit and just say that like, depending on their money situation, if they had to bury her or whatever, I mean, I guess you need to do it somehow. Um, you that's need to pay good, for it, you know, like I'm not going to say that that's, point. yeah, I'm not going to say that that's like out of the, you know, that's weird. Yeah. Because you do have to pay for that. And you they, do. they did not have a significant amount of money. They and didn't. it is costly. So that is probably why you would do that yeah. because now if the body's, you know, in a morgue or whatever, and you need to start paying for, you know, all that stuff. It's, it is a very expensive thing. Well, I will say between the two insurance policies, Eddie McDessie was um, going to receive $700,000. Yeah. See, that's a lot of money. Um, But yeah, that's probably why in 40 hours, I mean, 
probably, you know, I don't know, but that would be an excuse. Right. Well, I mean, this is all kind of beyond suspicious. And the weird thing, though, was the DNA evidence still supported Eddie McDessie's story. His DNA was not on the knife. The only two DNA profiles on the knife were from Elise herself, obviously, because she had been stabbed with the knife, and Quincy Brown. Eddie's DNA profile was only on the gun. And evidence did show that Elise and Quincy Brown had had sex. Whether it was consensual or not, the detectives did not know. But the two did have sex. And this brought up more questions. Was Elise raped? Had Eddie just not remembered the story correctly? Like, did, like, is there a possibility that he just didn't remember if the rape was in progress while he went in the room? Or was it something that he just assumed by the position of her body, like we said before? So at this point, detectives kind of have two theories here. Elise did get sexually assaulted during her time in the Navy, and she was planning on going public regarding the gross negligence of her superior officers. The couple did go to dinner that night. Eddie was attacked and tied up. Elise was raped and murdered by Quincy Brown as a warning. Eddie came to and went upstairs. He saw his wife tied to the bed, uh, practically gutted with her stockings and her underwear ripped. Brown was standing over her. He got the gun, approached Brown, shot him once. Brown dropped to his knees and then Eddie shot him again. He called 911 and after he wanted to collect life insurance because Elise really did make more money than him in the relationship and he knew that the Navy would not be happy with the situation. So he kind of just wanted to get these policies in progress in fear that they were not going to give them out. And then he wanted to escape. And that's why he wanted that money quickly because he wanted to get out of Dodge because he knew this would create issues. If the Navy really did or officers within the Navy did plan this attack. Okay. That's one theory. The second theory is that Elise maybe did not get sexually assaulted. Rather, she was having an affair with Quincy Brown. Eddie and Elise had not gone out to dinner that night. Rather, Eddie walked in on his wife having sex or being in the same room as another man while, you know, he was getting dressed and she was still tied up. He killed her, killed Quincy, but that leaves a lot of questions too. Like, would she have just been tied at the tie? The ties were very tight. They were done in a brutal fashion. Um, Maybe she hadn't been tied up and Eddie tied her up. Why this elaborate scene and story? And would Eddie McDessie, would, would he have been able to overpower two naval officers? He was not like a really in shape man. I mean, yeah, there is a lot of holes in that second theory. But I got to tell you, I, I think I'm actually on board with that second theory. Okay. I really am. You find it more plausible? I do. Okay. Each scenario created more and more questions. So the detectives decided to continue investigating. Eventually, they get back phone records from a phone that was located inside Quincy Brown's Buick, his car phone. Very fancy. It showed that 20 minutes before the murders took place, 
Quincy Brown had made three phone calls to the McDessie house. Now, does someone who is coming to torture and murder you call you three times before doing so? Now, this is not the scream murders. This is real life. (laughs) No, no, I, I, no one does that. That's why the second theory in my mind holds up. Because that's just weird. Between the condom, the the jacket, and now the car phone, I mean, the first theory doesn't seem possible. It is. It's, It's strange. Yeah. It seemed two of the calls that Quincy Brown made to the McDessie household went unanswered. And one lasted for two minutes. So after receiving this information, the detectives spoke with other people who knew the couple. And they found a possible third scenario. Eddie McDessie may have been interested in watching other men have sex with his wife. He was also extremely controlling of Elise. She was required to check in with him every 45 minutes, even when she was on duty at the base, something that her superior officers said led to her demotion. The fact that she was always distracted and her husband was always calling, something that the people she worked with did confirm. He could be very demeaning to her as well. Neighbors always heard the couple fighting and were well aware of their domestic problems. Now, beyond those three phone calls, there was no other evidence that Elise and Quincy were carrying on a relationship or an affair. However, the DNA evidence did reveal that the two had had sex before the murders took place. It seemed that the scenario shifted to the couple inviting Quincy over. Now, whether Elise wanted to do this or her controlling husband was forcing her to do so, we don't know. Could this have been a part of a scheme that they were trying to do? Were they trying to blackmail superior officers into getting money and having sex with Quincy Brown, one of the men that she listed as sexually assaulting her? Um, Were they collecting his DNA to have evidence to support the false allegations that they were making? You know, that does sound pretty good. I mean, it it sounds a little tinfoil hat-ish, but you know what? They've gone to the lengths to create videos, which included his name, I just want to add. Well, yeah, the, well, the notebook included I'm his sorry, name. I'm sorry, the notebook, yes. Yeah. Now, I know that sounds a little crazy and like out of the realm of possibility, but what investigators really learned was that Eddie McDessie was very good at controlling his wife. He was domineering and he made her do things. And they're thinking now more of Elise was this, a victim in a bigger sense of the word. You know, I don't want to label her as a woman who made false accusations. I want to give her the title of a victim. Because I think her husband was really practicing this coercive control over her. You know, she had this trauma bond with with him where she never wanted to make him unhappy. Um, and he convinced her that doing these things, making these false allegations, having sex with other men, and then he would demean her and make her feel horrible afterward. Like these were things that she was conditioned to do. 
So I don't think she's somebody who makes false allegations. I think she's someone who is being controlled by her husband and does what's going to make him happy. Wow. You know, I mean, that is a, another way to look at it. I mean, it really is. I don't know. It's kind of like the more we're going on here, it's like it's starting to make me second guess what I thought. I don't know. Like maybe when Quincy got there, Elise was already tied up and the two had sex. And while Quincy was getting dressed again and Elise was still tied up, Eddie confronted Quincy with the gun. Then he used the knife on his wife and planted the DNA evidence. Like maybe Elise was in on the beginning part, but she didn't know she would be murdered. And how vulnerable could you be? And how much more vulnerable can you be than being tied to the four posts of your bed? That's true. That's true. And like what you think, like he put the knife in his hand afterwards? Yeah. It's possible. So now with all this new information, the investigators wanted to talk to Eddie McDessie again. The only problem was he had left Virginia. Once he found out that he was a suspect, he left the state and headed back to where his family lived. This is also where Elise's family lived, Massachusetts. But no one would have to look hard for Eddie McDessie because he gave himself away. Two days after his arrival in Massachusetts, he called a reporter from Virginia. He told the reporter that he knew he was a suspect, so he had left the state. But since he had left his house in Virginia, he was being followed. He suspected that it was the Navy trying to take him down because he knew too much about the murders that they were trying to pin on him. Now, Elise's family was also in Massachusetts, and up to this point, they believed everything that Eddie was saying. So unfortunately, this poor family was really taken through the ringer. On top of grieving for the loss of Elise, they were also worried for her husband. One day after McDessie contacted the reporter, a call came into 911 reporting a car on fire and an injured man in Tynesboro, Massachusetts. When the responding officer approached the car, which was engulfed in flames, he had a man run up to him screaming that he had been shot and that the Navy was after him. Guess who it was? <laughs> Eddie. <laughs> yeah. Eddie McDessie went on to claim that a six-foot-tall black man ran him off the road, and once he did, he walked up to his car window and pointed a gun at him. He claimed that he was able to wrestle the gun away from the man, and that while he was trying to do so, he heard the gun go off three times. That was when he noticed he had been shot. Once he had been shot, he was able to, while holding his wound, kick open the door. And when he did this, the man ran away, got back in his car, and drove off. Now, as Eddie is telling this story to the officer, he keeps grabbing and squeezing at the gunshot wounds on his stomach. The officer asked him to please stop grabbing and squeezing himself and to only put pressure on his wounds. He also noticed that there was not a lot of blood on Eddie. Really none. He doubted that the man had ever been shot because of the lack of it. But still, he was taken to the hospital. Once the firefighters were able to put out the flames of that were like engulfing the car, the fire marshal was able to determine that the cause of the fire was a gas canister in the back seat of the car. 
So at the hospital, Eddie is treated for his gunshot wounds. However, doctors quickly realize that they don't see any skin or muscle penetration or metal fragments in x-rays. There are no gunshot wounds. Rather, they were powder burns. So they are able to determine that he had basically self-inflicted these wounds. Um, He shot himself three times with blank bullets. Seriously? Yeah. Okay. You know what he's he's trying to do? He's making it out like the Navy is like a hit squad. Yeah. What is this? Born supremacy? It's pretty crazy. Come on. So after he was, I think this is just, it goes with the story that he was originally planning to, to do. Like he's, he's holding tight because at this point, Eddie McDessie does not know that NCIS has deemed these false allegations. He doesn't know that they're suspecting him. He's continuing with this story because he doesn't know that the direction has gone the other way. Right. So once he was told this by doctors, he's going to check himself out of the ER and then he goes on the run again. So now that Eddie McDessie had vanished, detectives knew that he was their guy for this horrific crime. Now a double homicide. Quincy Brown was a victim in the same regard that Elise McDessie was. They called in a blood spatter analyst to compare the story that Eddie was telling to the blood at the crime scene. The expert was able to say that without a doubt, someone had altered the crime scene. Before the bloody knife was placed next to Quincy Brown's hand, it was first placed on the mattress beneath the covers, as there was a knife print there. Whoever altered the scene had just covered the knife print with a blanket. So they they basically thought the police would not see that. And really the reason why they say the knife print was probably on the bed was that once Eddie had stabbed his wife, he went to go kneel down next to Quincy Brown's body. And when he kneeled down with his left hand, he must have had the knife in his left hand. And when he leaned down on the bed with the knife, it made a print. And then he put it in Quincy Brown's right hand. Okay. So see, like yeah, like we said before, the planting of the knife, maybe they put it in, he put it in his hand. Right. So he must have been wearing a glove when he killed Which shows that he was ready for this to go down because people just don't wear gloves. And that brings back the tiniest tiniest detail from the beginning of this story eddie mcdessie did have a cut on his upper left hand which does happen when you do knife attacks especially as brutal as the ones done to his wife Mm -hmm. so the blood spatter also contradicted eddie's story about shooting quincy it's a sad detail Quincy Brown had been on his knees both times he was shot. He never dropped down to his knees the second time, as Eddie had claimed. So Quincy Brown had been shot while he was pleading for his life. Which is so sad. That's pretty sad. As you can imagine, that investigation, even working in conjunction with NCIS, took the detectives a very long time. It would be five years after the murder took place that Eddie McDessie would be indicted for the murder of his wife and Quincy Brown. But there was one problem. 
he was in Russia. He went to Russia? He went to Russia with the $700,000. Wow. The Virginia Beach Police Department was at a loss because Russia does not have an extradition treaty with the United States. But luckily for them, Eddie McDessie just could not help himself. McDessie had continued to reach out to the same reporter that he had reached out to when he had first tried to leave Virginia and go to Massachusetts. The reporter was the one who had told Eddie about the charges that had been brought against him. Eddie told the reporter that he wanted to tell his story and clear his name. At this point, McDessie has this whole other life. He's married again. He has a good job. But he's hurting for cash because him and his new wife, they blew through all of that insurance money. Of course. Like they always do. Never lasts. But he still wanted to get involved. He asked the reporter to come to Russia, which he did. He said that it had been a horrifying time because Eddie McDessie did have a gun on him during their interview. And they were kind of like in this remote Russian town. And he was with a killer. Well, a suspected killer at this point. Now, in the interview, McDessie said that someone hit him in the head, which caused him to pass out. But then when he woke up, he now had a new story that instead of just Quincy Brown being there, there was three to four people around him in the apartment. They had been the ones that had done everything. And that because he knew this information when he was in the United States, the Navy was after him. They wanted him to be the fall guy because they didn't want the stories of rape and misconduct to get out there. Now, at this point, McDessie still thought that the tape that Elise made was going to be his get out of jail free card. He had no idea that the rape accusations were proven to be false. So Eddie did exactly what he said he was going to do in the interview that he gave with the reporter. He said goodbye to his wife and voluntarily came back to the United States to stand trial. Wow. Even though he could have stayed in Russia and there was no extradition, so he would have never had to face a trial. He came back to the United States because he thought he was going to win that trial. That's so crazy. That's, that's confidence. <laughs> yeah, a lot of confidence. <laughs> In 2006, once all the legal paperwork of Eddie having been in Russia was completed with the American courts, Eddie McDessie was ready to stand trial for the murder of Elise McDessie and Quincy Brown. The prosecution claimed that Eddie was an abusive husband. He was cruel and controlling to Elise, a woman who would do anything to please him, including get involved in a scheme to defraud the U.S. Navy by making false accusations of sexual assault, rape, and negligence. They were going to use the video to extort money from high-ranking officials. This had been just one of many schemes cooked up by Eddie McDessie and Elise, who always seemed to go along with what he wanted to do. That was why the tapes had been made. The theory was that Scenario 3 was correct, that the couple invited Quincy Brown over to have sex with Elise. He did, and then Eddie was brutally murdered, and then Elise. For all we know, um, because honestly, I don't want to like besmirch Quincy Brown in any way. He might not have even gone over there to have sex at all. Just want to give him the benefit of the doubt. He might have just been 
invited over and he was forced at gunpoint to have sex with Elise or knife point. Like, we don't know exactly what happened. The only indication that we have as to the motive for him to have been invited over um, are the phone calls that he made and the condom that he had in his pocket. So that kind of leads you to believe that the sex that was had between Elise and Quincy um, on Quincy's part, we are still unsure of whether Elise was forced to do this or not by her husband. It was consensual. Right. So that's what I think took place. I think that I don't know whether or not Elise truly consented. I think she might have just been trying to make her husband happy. But in the eyes of Quincy Brown, it was consensual. I think this whole entire case is like this crazy thing where like they opened up Pandora's box. It's like very complicated. I think the biggest thing here is you have two people dead. What was their involvement? And I guess we're never going to get all the details to really piece this together because everyone that can tell it is dead. I completely, you know what I mean? We're, we have one guy that's claiming this happened. I, I don't know. It's really hard to say, but what we could, what, what I can say is that Quincy Brown was definitely invited and he was also invited to go there and whatever took place took place. And they're both victims right. of, of, of what took place in that home at that time. All the other stuff, like you, you got to put it aside and just look at the fact that the, those two were the victims in this case. And the husband has to be lying here. Right. Something's going on. So, and that's really interesting that you say that because that is what the attorney, um, the prosecuting attorney, added in her closing arguments was that we will never know the full details of what happened that night or what the plan was. Only Eddie McDessie knows that, and he's not telling the truth. So, I think it is smart of you to say, let's put all the other details aside. Two people were murdered, and I mean, as a juror. What do you think is more likely a massive conspiracy theory with the Navy or a jealous, money hungry, controlling husband murdering his wife? Now, the thing that Eddie thought would save him with the jurors, the tape of Elise saying she had been raped by fellow naval officers was not allowed in court. The judge said that it was hearsay. So after a trial that lasted eight days Eddie McDessie was found guilty of two counts of murder by a jury of his peers for a trial that he did not have to come back to America for. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And I, I want to end this story because I, I don't want it so easily when people talk about this case They get wrapped up in this idea of false allegations of rape. And, you know, people, it's so funny how people say, well, false allegations are out there. But in reality, the percentage of rape claims that are false allegations are so small in comparison to rape claims that are made. And it is still a a general consensus that of all rapes that take place, only 10% are reported. And there's many reasons for that. 
So I don't want this case to fall into the category of false rape allegations. Instead, I would rather this case fall into the category of coercive control and an abusive relationship and a woman falling victim to somebody that she she loves and she thinks loves her. Because I think that's what happened with Elise and Eddie McDessie. And she fell victim to one of her husband's schemes. And so did Quincy Brown. And they both kind of were in their own way dragged through the mud. Because Elise was made to be like, oh, she made all these false accusations. And Quincy Brown was accused of being a rapist and a murderer. And they were both victims here. So uh, uh, that's a pretty unique aspect of this case as well. So again, I don't want it to fall into the false accusation category because I just think I don't want to drag Elise McDessie's name through the mud any more than it had been already um, by some media outlets. And I just want to say that I think it's more of a case of course of control with her husband. I actually, I agree with everything that you're saying. Also, you know, Quincy Brown too, because he's the victim as well. And you know what? You know, we don't know. Like I said before, we don't know what took place. So I don't want to drag his name through the mud either, you know, and call him, you know, a rapist, a murderer. We don't know what happened, you know. Right. But he was killed. And just because somebody, you know, like if he if he did go over there to have like a consensual sexual relationship, that does not mean that he should be murdered. People make mistakes where humans things happen, you know. I just think that he shouldn't be villainized in any type of way. Like nothing that you do that could potentially be a part of human nature justifies you being murdered. No. So this was a crazy one, right? It really was. And it's like emotionally draining. Like I feel exhausted right now. I actually do too. <laughs> oh my gosh. I need a drink. All right. So before we go, what we want to do is we want to thank our new patrons on Patreon for all of their support. So thank you to Griselda Guzman for upping her pledge, Catherine Ferrant, Lindsay Spenner, Renee Houghton, Sarah, Rebecca Knuckles, Jenny Smith, Claire Behrens, Melissa Fogel, Lisette Para, Shelby, Ashley Jones upped her pledge to $5, and so did Andrea Danielson, Lucy, Ashley Emma, Rosalind Cox upped her pledge, and so did Rachel Coco, Christy, Erin Gadbury, Marg Tomney, Jessica Hayes, and Latte Librarian. Thank you guys so much for your donations, and we hope you are enjoying the 50 Patreon episodes that you are getting to enjoy right now, and we'll be releasing another one tomorrow. All right, guys, until um, the next two weeks from now, we will see you later. Bye. Bye, guys.